Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Hello and welcome to IRC Book Club. This is, I believe, the third time we've gone into talking about Always Be Hiring by the legend that is me. And we got to... We got to you and your recruiter. Let's talk about the relationship. Yes. Yes. So what I thought I'd do in this part of the book was just expand a little bit on getting results out of recruiters. And I think a lot of people forget that maybe, okay, well, I'll run a recruitment company X. Of course, they're going to want to work on my job spec. Of course, they're going to try and fill it because they work on a no-win, no-fee basis. So surely they're just going to go hell for leather. And you and I both know that it's not quite like that, is it, Mike? Not in any way like that at all, actually. I mean, the reality is finding job briefs is easy. It's never been easier. Actually, finding job briefs with clients that uh, you you can actually work with is an absolute non-starter. Because, you know, I've got a client appointment today, actually, at 11 o'clock. Yeah. Clients reached out to me, sent me his job brief. Good company, nice guy. I looked at that brief and went, wow, that's going to be nearly impossible to fill. Their requirements is ridiculous in terms of what the market offers. Yeah. And then I got into an email conversation with him and said, how many recruiters are you working with? He's working with two others. So you look at this requirement. Yeah. It's a good company, no doubt about it. He's an excellent guy, great track record. But actually, it's a very tight job brief where he's asking a little bit too much, really. He wants too much for his money. And on top of that, he's using two of the recruiters. And I explained this to him and said, that's just not going to work for me. As with all things, when you walk away from something, sometimes that's when the truth comes out. But, you know, that's the summary of this book, isn't it? Of this chapter, sorry, really, is actually how easy is the client to work with? How much commitment have they given you? And, And you've used the word artistic license. I think as we've, you know, we filmed this on Wednesday, the 19th of January, the clients that are recruiting are those who have thought more carefully about their requirement. And actually, as much as anything, whether the candidate cohort out there exists for them to fill it. Because it's one thing briefing you, but if you can't fill it, what's the point in dealing with it? It doesn't cross their mind. The question of actually, how big potentially is the audience for my requirement? Yeah. I mean, we've covered that in previous chapters, and that's not really this chapter. But, you know, this chapter, let's get back to the actual book, is what's the competition level like? You know, I'm a competitive person, naturally, but I'm not a fool. No. You know, I'm not an idiot. Will they take my call? I've got another client. I've done loads of work with this guy. He is an absolute epic nightmare to get hold of. And because he's an epic nightmare to get hold of, if I can't speak to him for a week, the candidate I reached out to about, they've gone off the market. So what's the point in finding him candidates? In this market, if you're hard to get hold of as a client, you're done. Exactly. Exactly. And then, oh, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Can you call me tomorrow? No. Sorry. I'm going to call another client tomorrow. And then your first one, you know, what are my terms like? And is there any money to be made? You know, let's be clear. We have a cost of acquisition of getting a candidate, be that, you know, media marketing like this, you know, doing this book club costs money. Yeah. Time costs money. So actually, significant opportunity costs. Yeah. You know, if the terms are an absolute nightmare, well, we're not going to make any money. You know, the clients out there in the VAR channel, I know they don't like being called that but they won't get involved in a sale where there's no margin in it, and nor will I. Correct. And the irony is the good recruiters will qualify you out, and the bad ones won't. And then you'll end up 
slating the recruiters. Oh, they're all rubbish, these recruiters. Well, no, the good ones just qualified you out as a potentially shit client, yep. as a bad prospect that they didn't want to throw time and effort at. And then you ended up working with a bad one and the whole recruitment market's bad. No, nope, not like that. Yeah. So I've broken it down into a few bits. Will the client take my call? I know it's such a simple thing, but you've got to give your recruiters face time. It's no different to selling a software solution and knowing, do I have real access to this buying influence? You know, like yesterday, I'm working on a job. It's not the sexiest job in the world, Mike, this job. It's selling maintenance, mate. Mm. Um, it's high-end stuff, but it's maintenance, really. But I'll tell you, I had a question to ask the client. I dropped him a text with the question. I said, if you've got a minute, it'd be really helpful to discuss it. Ten minutes later, he was on the phone and gave me a 15-minute explanation around that question. Top client. Top client. He's a high... He's my, Actually, he's a much higher priority than a couple of clients I've got that are in inverted commas, super sexy AI, this and singing, dancing, that. He's a high priority because he's all over me. He's, I've had his internal recruiter on the phone yesterday. Thanks for all your hard work. Da, 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 da. So th they've become a really high priority client because actually I'm thinking, do you know what? I can work with this guy. And it moves to the next question, which does the client trust me? Well, yeah, he does. I think he knows. I've written here, will they give me a nice long piece of rope with which to hang myself? And he has. He's letting me get on with the work and do it. And then the other question is, do I trust them? Yes. Will they pay? Yeah, absolutely. And then what I've referred to is the four horsemen, HR, talent acquisition, recruitment, and the hiring manager. And what I wanted to write about here is just getting people thinking about what are the dynamics between HR, the talent acquisition team, the recruiter, and the hiring manager, and where bad campaigns actually can happen because of that. So you, you go on, you, you, I think you were about to fire up to speak then, Mike. I was looking at this page, actually. I think the most interesting part of this is the relationship that recruiters have with internal talent. Yeah. So I've got one client at the minute who are Gartner Magic Quadrant leading low-code vendor, literally one of the best companies in that market. I'm working with internal talent, and the relationship I've got with him, with him is an odd one because I find the candidates and he looks after it. I don't have much to do with the hiring managers, really. But he and I have got a very straight, easy relationship. Yeah. And when I met him, he said, listen, Mike, I don't want to use you, but I haven't got any choice because I've just got too many vacancies. Fine. Right. So long as we're open, and you've written about it, you know, in an open relationship, so long as we're very clear about what we're all doing, brilliant. Absolutely fine with it. Let's set the rules out early on. But what actually happens very often with internal talent is – They'll go, yeah, I've not done any work on this job at all. And then you get out into the market, they've done absolutely bloody loads of work. And every single prospect that you'd reach out to has already been touched. Loads of mediocre work. Well, it doesn't matter. It, it, the, the, from internal talent perspective, they've reached out with their company name to the prospect candidate that we would have reached out to. That's it, work done. Doesn't matter whether it's good, bad, or indifferent work. Yeah. And it's not that I have an issue with dealing with talent, not in any way. And, and you make reference to it here, but it's actually about the openness of the relationship so we all know what we're all doing. Because if we all know what we're all doing, that's good. Bang on. Yeah, absolutely. Tell us what our part is, and then we'll decide whether we, wanna, whether we want to be part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And then you get, it's like you say, you end up with the crumbs off the table, don't you, from the internal talent team? Yeah, and I think any recruiter that does that is just foolish, ridiculously so. Yeah, whereas the, the relationship you've got with that talent guy is you're, you're working on job specs where he's too busy to look at it and he's given you the run at it. You're not dealing with what I've referred to as the crumbs from the table. Completely, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
or you get the t- internal talent team that gives the job to a million recruiters and they just want CVs. Yeah, and then you've got 10 recruiters all going after the same cohort. It's just a disaster nightmare that I've no interest in. Yeah, absolutely. And then what about picking interviewees? So, I've, so we've got to a really key point here. We're actually at the point of the book where I'm starting to talk to clients about picking candidates to interview. So one of the things is, again, a lot of what I wrote about in the book, just getting people to be cognizant of how do you pick an interviewee? When you get some CVs, how do you decide which ones you do and don't want to see? And just being cognitive of that, how am I thinking? What's actually my thought process? Most people don't know what their own thought process is. It's just gut, subconscious. Yeah, that one looks great. Yeah, that one doesn't. How do you want the CV presented to you? Do you want the recruiter to ring you? Do you want them to send you a CV? Do you want them to present it on a PowerPoint? How do you actually want to understand the skill set of the candidate in relation to all those requirements you set out all that time ago? Now, I know you and I, we tend to create like a little bracey based on the client spec. This is why he's a match. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It goes back to the point of the recruiter that you've chosen. If you're paying crap percentage, briefed a million and one recruiters, just expect CVs and with no input at all because they don't have time to qualify. They don't have time to talk to the candidates. They don't have time to understand it. If you beat the living daylights out of somebody on price, you can't expect anything more than a CV. And why should they? Why should they? You're paying them rubbish percent. You know, it's no no different to going out and and saying, I want to buy a computer server based purely on price. All right, well, you're going to deal with a crap company then. Full stop. Yeah, absolutely. Here, I've I've actually, what I've done page 148 onwards is I've I've actually broken down a number of CVs and how I would analyse the CV. Now, I I think that for the auspices of this podcast, uh, unless there's anything specifically we want to pick, I think we should skip through this, but it is actually a really cool section. So what I've done is I've translated CV speak over two or three CVs and actually what the real meaning of some of those CVs are and what the real meaning of some of the things that people say, you know, particularly, just an example here, over 14 years, direct sales and sales management experience in financial services and IT, specifically relating to business intelligence and data warehousing. I've written, what does that actually mean? Does it add any value to me as a prospective interview? Can you learn anything just from that statement? Not really. Interesting that he mentions financial services. You could be forgiven for thinking yourself to the financial services sector. Could forgive a green recruiter for thinking so too. But as we actually examine the CV in more detail, you'll see they actually spent a lot of their time in their post-military career with a high street bank as a bank manager. So it's just about getting people thinking about being a little bit more detailed and actually analysing what does he, what does it mean there? Now, the challenge you've got is in the current market, I'd be careful with being this analytical, actually. When I wrote this, the market wasn't like it is today, Mike. Yeah, I mean... Because I think if you're that analytical with CVs right now, you could talk yourself out of a lot of good candidates. And frankly, no client can afford to do that in a market as candidate dry as this one. It is more than that, actually. I think if you've got a good relationship with a recruiter who uh, you know and, and who they know you, CVs are relevant anyway, actually. Yes, it should be. It should be, really. should be irrelevant. So then you're on to interviewing. Yeah. I mean, clients. And we've got some common interview scripts. The first one is the chronological historical review of a candidate's CV. People just do that because that's what they think they ought to do. Let's go through your CV. So what I'm referring to here is where the client gets the CV in front of him and he goes, right, so back in 1974, firstly, if we're we're referring to a candidate back in 1974, perhaps it's not quite the right candidate in this market. Let's just go back to back in 1997, you joined Company X. Tell me about your time there. 
all right, and what did you sell there? And what did you do there? And what was your target? And what did you achieve? And it's very dry. But some clients think they should just review a candidate's CV, and they think that that's an interview. I think there's also this word interview is irrelevant in sales uh, recruitment, actually. So my sister used to work at McDonald's. Yeah. She interviewed people to work there. Actually, in a sales uh, meeting, what's happening is the client and candidate are trying to figure out whether they can work with each other. Can the candidate make money? Can the client make money out of the candidate? And actually, that's not an interview. That's just an assessment of needs. And I think the term interview leads clients down the fact that they're interviewing people to go and work at McDonald's. And it's just not like that. And let's get it right. We've spent a lot of time earlier in the book talking about having a very specific set of criteria against which you're going to interview the candidate. Yeah, just get into those. So some of your other interview groups, irrelevant questions. God, I could go on about this all day. It's just some of the questions (laughs) the client asks are just ludicrous. They're either ludicrous or completely irrelevant. Yeah. Pressure interviewing, hate that. I think it was one of your clients or indeed a company that was a prospect, whichever way you look at it, pressure tested a candidate in an interview. I can tell you right now, if somebody pressure tested me in an interview, I'd just walk out and say, I'm not into this, I don't care. I'll tell you what's interesting, Mike. We were talking about a company this morning that have a very stringent interviewing process, almost too good in a way. And actually, that's a little bit of a pressure interview, really. Yeah, it's it's very passive-aggressive what they do. Yeah, it's pressure interview. Very passive-aggressive. They're not aggressive, but actually, if you knew what you were listening to in the question that they ask, very passive-aggressive. And then you've got others, you know, interrogation, getting sold to forgetting to sell, interviewing in dumb locations and environments. One of the problems with it, it's very easy when you've puffed up your first management job, you've got all that power of being a sales leader, and all of a sudden you, you, you want to turn the tides on people. It's very easy to get into the habit of interrogating a candidate, of almost feeling like you, it's like it's the FBI. I'll tell you now, if you try hard enough, you will find a hole in every candidate that sits in front of you. Well, interesting, referring back to the meeting I've got today, yeah, we're paying X-Basic. We want somebody on X-Basic who's hit target. Oh, great. <laughs> They've hit target. Yeah. They're on the same basic as you're paying. They're going to leave. Sounds perfect to me. Yeah, absolutely. It's just silly. If you're interrogating people, you will find holes. And you will make people feel uncomfortable. And it's very easy to do to realise, actually, oh, I'm going to go deeper, and I'm going to go deeper, and then I'm going to go deeper still. What are you going deeper about? Oh, right, yeah, I'm going to catch him out. Easy. I can Literally, you could give me 50 of the best salespeople in the world with their CVs. I'd find holes if I looked for them, as would you. Yeah, I'm meeting a guy today, actually, after I've done this, and... I think he said he earned 3.30 last year, something like that. So he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, 3.30. I know who he works for, very stable company. Why is he leaving? There's a reason. He's just straight into it. I like this question, actually, on preposterous and irrelevant interview questions. Where do you see yourself in five <laughs> years? Yeah, thanks, Brett. Oh, what a on, stupid... I mean, your others are more stupid, and I've heard them all last. But the where do you see yourself in five years? What are you page are you on here? 164. Where do you see yourself in, in five years? What a stupid question. What on earth has that got to do with can you do the job? Well, just go back to the skills that you decided you needed. Focus on the skills. Focus on the skills. That's it. Not where do you see yourself in five years. I was talking to a client the other day about a a guy that's got a second interview on the 24th. Really good guy. They really like him. He said, oh, the question is whether we can hang on to him or not. So I said to him, let's just stop a minute. If he comes next year, and he hits target. If I told you right now, here's the scenario. 
you're going to pay me recruitment fee X. He's going to come to your company. He's going to hit target and he's going to do 2 million quids worth of business next year. But he's going to leave at the end of the year. You're not going to hire him. Correct. And he just went silent. And I went, so you're telling me you wouldn't take that right now? And he went, well, of course I would. Right. Because it's just a stupid objection. Where do you start to see yourself in five years? Nobody really in sales knows where they see themselves in five years. Yeah, we've all got a plan. And everybody's got a plan until they get smashed in the mouth. Correct. But actually, stuff happens. Pandemics, recessions, stuff, war, famine, just stuff. And it's very difficult. It's a preposterous question. You know, questions like, if you were an animal, which one would you be? Well, why? What, what do you want to know that for? I'll tell you now, if a client asked one of my candidates that and they said, what should I do, Mike? I said, I'd say, just get up and walk out. Just get up and go home. I, I wouldn't even bother answering you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even reply to any, in any way. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, you know, I've gone a bit deeper into pressure interviewing and interrogation here. Do you remember that company in the 90s? I mean, they did very, very well, actually. They used to leave people sitting in reception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mad, isn't it? So they used to just deliberately leave them until somebody would have the nerve to get up and knock on the door and say, well, why are you late? And the ones that didn't were unsuccessful. I mean, it's a bit silly, but I kind of got it. But at the same time, if a, if a client asked me, yeah, I'm going to do that now, I'd say, for God's sake, are you mental? Uh, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, a candidate should just walk out reception. And what's interesting is I think in the 90s, people would have handled that. They were all right with that. Now, oh, Gen Z, no. They're not going to put up with that. They'd feel triggered. Triggered. Well, Gen Z wouldn't, but nobody would. You know, that's old-fashioned, isn't it? I don't think any of the modern people in the IT market are doing that actually anymore. I don't think. No. I think currently a, a lot of people are interviewing based on, do you have a pulse? Yes. Are you a Muppet? No. Right. Here's 75k base. I think this is an interesting one, interviewing in dumb locations and environments. Oh, I mean, there's not a lot of that happening at the moment. But Well, I think it's, I th- that's what I was going to say. I think it's a bit more relevant. I, I think there's relevance now because what I've found is, you know, post-pandemic, end of pandemic, wherever we are, I don't know. I, th- I think a lot of the uh, interviews have become very lazy. I find a lot of clients going, yeah, I'll just do a quick call because we just sort of slowly get lazy. But actually, if you're a hiring company, in this market, and you're meeting candidates online in a way that is anything other than you're meeting a CEO of your most important prospect, forget it. Because what that candidate is seeing is into your home office, they're seeing you. So if you turn up looking like you're just about to go to the beach, Mm. don't be surprised if you then hire somebody who thinks that that's the environment in which they then work. And three months later, when you meet them on a Teams call and they're dressed like they're going to go and work at the beach. Or they're sat on their bed with their laptop. Yeah. Don't complain to anybody but yourself because actually you're setting the pace of what's acceptable and what's not. Yes. And also what I'm finding is, talking about location environment, the question now, you know, as we film this, is a lot of candidates are only meeting clients online. And I think in doing that, if you only met candidates online your conversion rate of offers to accepted will go down. You should meet people online. It's the right thing to do. But at some point, you've got to invite them into your office so that they can get a handle on what the environment's like. Otherwise, they will join you. At some point, they'll come into your office. And if it doesn't meet their expectation, they will then leave. 
So you really have to be very cognizant of that, I think. I like this, Mike. I think it's interesting because I think there's going to be, I think you're really onto something there. I think come the summer, in reality, we're all working from home and under theoretical government orders, aren't we, at the moment? And we've had two years of it and it's all, yeah, I'm home working, I'm home working. But actually, I think come this spring and we get to the back end of this rubbish couple of years that we've had, I think people are going to really want to mingle and mix. So one, yes, we are all doing video interviews. Everybody's getting interviewed over video calls at the moment. Two, that's great. But like you say, create the right impression. Get your brand on brand. Yeah, get it right. Get your business on brand. You know, I've got a client where they've got the, it's the little details like, what does your team's background look like? Is your team's background on brand? Is your lighting any good? Yeah. What do you look like? But I mean, my environment is not on brand. It's my home office. But it looks half decent. Well, I don't know. You, you've got a company business plan behind you that's clearly company colours, but your personal brand, you look, your environment looks professional. Yeah, but so many of them, you know, I meet clients who are, you know, properly, you know, properly top people. And I look at it and I, when I meet the client and I, I write in my notes when I'm meeting them, this might be a problem for certain candidates. Yeah. Because I look at the person sat there in some crap hoodie. No, it's not a branded hoodie, just some crap hoodie that he bought from eBay 20 years ago with like loads of junk on the shelves and stuff. <laughs> and I just think top candidates, they're just going to not really understand why they don't like you, but they're not going to like you. Yeah, and I think I actually think the world needs to smarten up a little bit in the next few months. You know, I've, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've, no, I've taken to wearing a jacket with my polo neck a lot, wearing a shirt. I'm not going to wear suits. But I do think that there's an element of, I'm the sales leader here. I need to dress like the leader and look like the leader, look like I'm in charge. The leaders are, you know, you think about some of the companies that we deal with, they're, they're good companies and all, but they're meeting sales leaders who, as you say, need to say, listen, this is, I lead you, this is the job. Anyway, so I wanted to um, just talk about that. And then you've got winging it. I, I think a lot of clients really do their prep two minutes before the interview. <laughs> If at all, they pitch up at the interview. Whilst the interview's starting, they go into Outlook, they find the CV, and then they start. And that is wooing in it. And it's terrible into it's terrible recruitment practice. I completely agree. Now, one thing I want to talk to you about, which I am not a fan of, and I'll explain why you star. Situation, task, action, result. It's okay. I tell you why I hate it. It's because if you're not good at it, it just sounds like it's a scripted interrogation. Yeah, and I have alluded to that here in the book. That I think the key thing with STAR and using competency-based interviewing is it's an art, point one. Point two is if you do not have rapport with that candidate, and what I'm talking about is real rapport, that candidate is not sat there really, really, really wanting to work for you. It's a terrible idea. If the candidate really wants to work for you, it's actually a scintillatingly good idea. But anywhere in between the two, first interview, terrible idea. But interviewing for competencies is the right thing to do, Mike. Driving into skills and competencies and asking for specific examples. I was talking to a HR person about this yesterday. Salespeople are full of shit. They just are. Yeah, tell me about a time you want a deal. Well, if I had a deal like that, this is what I would do. Right, give me an example of a deal that you actually personally won and explain to me how you employed this 
X skill in relation to that deal. How did you do it? That's good interviewing. And a lot of people don't quite distinguish between future, past and present. And the good candidates, if they've got real track records, they will be able to tell you about deals they've won in relation to the competencies that you ask them. But like you say, the problem with STAR is people read a shit book on competency-based interviewing. They have no rapport with the candidate. And where they really screw up is they haven't established that the candidate wants the job first. If you haven't established that, it's a sucky idea. The good interviewers, they start the interview process by getting the candidates salivating. Then you can ask them what they want. You can do what you want to them then. I actually personally think a better method of doing that, I have a few clients like this who get through the STAR interview, but just in a very subtle way. Very subtle. Correct. So they'll pick something out on the CV and say, oh, it's SE, you sell told to HSBC, T- tell me about that. Blah, blah, blah. All right, fair enough. And, and, and how do you get into it? I bet that was difficult. Blah, blah, blah. And they can do the whole STAR thing without it being an interrogation. Well, absolutely. Because you've got 10 questions. Well, if, if you're a smart guy and you, if you've got an interview that starts at three, your interview starts at two or 2.15 or 2.30. Now, if you've done a good job on all the things we've talked about earlier on in the book, notably analysing your key performers and creating a specific set of key questions around the criteria that you realise are what makes your key performers successful, you can then look at the candidate's CV and you can think, right, question one, it's competency act, right? They're my questions I want to get into this interview. And then I want to assess the candidate based on those key issues. And I'm going to mark them out of X and I'm going to use my scoring system that we talked about earlier on in the book. You don't have to go situation, task, achievement, result. What you can do is ask your questions and then look at the answers and dig gently around it. Where it fucks up, is where some 21-year-old HR person who's been on an interviewing course comes in and uses STAR to the letter without really winding it subtly into the process. That makes for awful interviewing. And candidates, because in this market in particular, candidates walk away. You're absolutely right. The candidates shouldn't know they've been through a competency-based interview. They shouldn't have a scooby. One of my favourite interviews ever, I don't know if she's still in recruitment now, she was an internal recruiter called Louise Gallant. Yeah, she was good at it. Absolutely superb. The interview feedback from her, I always thought to myself, wow, you've bloody got that right. <laughs> I thought, wow. And I got talking to her about it one day. She said, yeah, I'm banging to star. I said, it doesn't strike me you ask star questions. She said, no, no, no. I do ask star star questions. I just dress them up nicely. And the candidates would always go, oh, she was lovely. I had a great chat with her. And actually, I always thought, all right, okay. Uh, they would all say that, whether they'd nailed the interview or not, but she got right to the bottom of them. I always thought she was a fabulous interviewer, Louise Glant. But I've written here, the professional interviewees should be under no illusions that they are going to control the meeting. So it's little things. I'm on page 190 now, Mike. We're getting to the business end. Start with rapport, highlight the meeting agenda. So what you're going to find is really good salespeople will try and control the meeting, and rightfully so. So they bloody should. Hardly any do. But the best ones will. Best ones will, but let's not mislead the listeners. Hardly anybody's going to do that. Yes. We've got a candidate that that we're working with at the moment who's classically trained, a little bit longer in the tooth. I've organised an interview for him this week. And uh, the young lady who's just taken over as the talent acquisition person in the business messaged me yesterday. She says, he's asked me for a meeting agenda, right, for the interview. So I rang her back. I said, what's that? She says, what is this? He's asked me for a meeting agenda. It's an interview. I'll tell you the agenda. I'm going to interview him. 
I said, that's a good sign. That's what he does with customers. He's a sales professional. He gets an agenda before he shows up. But not many of them will try, but the good ones will try and get an agenda and then will try and drive the meeting towards the agenda. Now, actually, I think he'd have been better off suggesting a meeting agenda. I think he'd have been better off getting past the first stage and waiting until he was talking to a decision maker, actually. Correct. Correct. Because he hasn't realised he's over-egging his pudding, isn't he, a little bit? Well, he hasn't done any research, has he? He hasn't thought, what does that person do and what do they want? He's meeting the decision maker in the same interview, but he shouldn't have messaged her. He should have messaged the decision maker. That's fair enough. So... So you've got here a final word on cadence and closing the candidate for the next stage. I think this is a very fine balance, actually, because I think if you as a client close too heavily, too quickly, you give too much power. And I think if I was a candidate, actually, and I got too heavily closed too quickly, it would make me nervous. I think the balance to find, and I've got a client, a lady who you know I'm talking about, Johnny, who I rate, has been one of the very best. What she does, I don't know how she does it, I've never seen her interview, but she manages to take the applicant to a point at which they want to close her, and then she lets herself be closed with a little tiny objection, just to keep them pushing. Personally, I think in this market, speed kills. Speed is everything, and intensity is everything. We lost a candidate this week to another company who've come up with mental money, They've been fast, but I'll tell you what, I was talking to him the other day. They have sold their bollocks off. They closed it. I said to him, you've been closed. And he went, yeah, I have. They've closed you. you. They've closed you, and now you feel like you can't move and you're taking that job. And he went, yeah, but they've offered me 90K base, a boatload of stock, and the offer's really good, so I'm quite happy to have been closed. And actually, I kind of agree that it's about getting your power frame right and not losing control there's a balance between, please come and work for me, I'm needy, and driving the campaign at a pace level, an intensity level, that means you don't lose the candidate. But I think a lot of that is about setting your stall out very early on in terms of what our process is this. I don't think a lot of the clients communicate with the candidates very early on what the process of interview is. I don't think it's even that. I think you, in this market, Mike, you've just got to whisk them off their feet. Candidate's feet, if you've got a good candidate sat in front of you in this job market, that candidate's feet should not touch the ground. They shouldn't touch the ground. If you've finished an interview and that candidate hasn't got another interview in their diary and you've not closed each other, it doesn't care, no matter who's closed who, the good recruiters now, the really best ones, the ones that will win, they'll be the ones that will say, right, get your diary out, we're meeting again. Put another meeting in the guy's diary, close them, sell to them. And that meeting should be within hours of the first meeting. The perfect recruitment campaign right now looks like Monday first interview, Tuesday second interview, Wednesday third interview, Thursday job offer, Friday acceptance, Monday at resignation, two weeks later they start with your company or a month later they start with your company. And in between that, you should be all over that candidate because that's how competitive it is out there, particularly in certain levels of the market. That client we're talking about where you, you've got your favorite client they are in the fight of their lives for some of these candidates. I've got four candidates in my diary this afternoon. Every single one of them looks awesome. Every single one of them will have five interviews with five world-class enterprise-level software vendors whose value proposition to them as potential employees will be brilliant. Which one will they end up at? Well, I'll try and exert maybe a little bit of influence, but in reality, that's not our business model now. 
So they're going to end up at the one, they'll get offered all of them. They will end up at the company that sells their bollocks off the best. The one who actually gets the interview process whisks them off their feet. And that lad we lost on Monday, he got whisked off his feet, Mike. His feet didn't touch the ground over about a week and a half. And our client just couldn't cope with that. Couldn't cope with the pace. So I get your point, which is there's a power frame issue here, which is you don't want to lose control. But at the same time, in this market right now. This is why you need to be close with your recruiter. Correct. Because your recruiter needs to be able to give you advice and help you get the result that you want. If you're using a kid on a phone and you're paying them rubbish percent, you won't get that. You just won't get it because they won't know. And you'll ring the recruiter and say, what else has he got on the go? Oh, I don't know. What do I need to do to get yourself line? Don't know. Is he going to take the job? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, he's really up for it. He's really up for it. Yeah, he loves you. He loves you. Really? Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And those rubbish recruiters don't turn around and go, yeah, he's not going to take this. Think you're wasting your time. It's interesting. One of our clients, I said to him, oh, I don't know, last year, he made somebody an offer. I said, you're wasting your time. He's not going to accept this offer. Yeah. Obviously, a candidate didn't take the offer. <laughs> and then he sent me an email going, <laughs> FFS. I said, I did tell you he wasn't going to take the job. Obviously, I've not spoke to the client again. Uh, it's funny because I had one go the other way because I had one a while ago where I said to the client, I just can't see this girl coming to work for you. She doesn't seem that excited, doesn't seem that inspired. And he went, right, well, I'll sort it out then. Oh, I remember that, yes. And fair play, he did. So come on then, let's get into the bit I've picked out. Um, it's page 215. It's 30, 60, 90. 30, 60, 90 day plans. Yeah, so second, well, I've written here, 30, 60, 90. God, they're so old hat now. Just don't bother. As you've said, you've got hundreds in your Dropbox folder. <laughs> Literally, I have got a library to give to candidates of unbelievably good ones. You, you, you've used the word mindless. Yes. I mean, it's just, it's just a joke. Uh, I don't know if this is on the next page, but what are you making of role plays in the interview process? Well, I mean, on the 30, 60, 90 thing, if there's a reason for it, it's a good idea. And it can be okay, but you've got to know why you're doing it and you've got to know what you want out of it. And actually, you've got to be much, much, much more detailed, particularly in terms of assumptions. What are the assumptions? Okay, so you want 30, 60, 90 day plan. What's the end point of the plan? So if you want somebody to tell you what they're going to achieve in 90 days, well, what's the actual end point? What will you expect them to have done? The client would argue that's up to the candidate to figure that out, though. No, it's for the client because it's a preposterous question to ask people. What's your plan for 90 days? To do what? Plan for what? Plan for what? Well, that would be my first question. If, I was a, if you were the interviewer and I was the interviewer, I'd say, yep, no problem, 30, 60, 90-day plan. At the end of 90 days, Johnny, what does good look like? What will I have? What will I have pre so that, I don't agree with that, actually, what you just said there. The 30, 60, 90-day plan is boring because it's been done a million times. It's a candidate-driven market. And who can be asked to do it? And everybody's got a library of them in their Dropbox. Yeah, and, and who can be asked to do it? I mean, the responsibility of the actual uh, content of it is down to the candidate, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've given a detailed breakdown of a good way to do it. In terms of role plays, I like role plays. The problem with role plays are candidates don't like it. You've put it here, the play is the thing. I mean, I'm with you, I like it. The candidates don't like it. They're getting warmer to it, though, I must say. They're getting warmer to it. Problem with a role play is it finds people out. Yeah, it does, yeah, 100%. Yeah, that, that's the problem. You will find people out, and it, it goes back to what I said earlier. You'll find holes. Yeah. You just will. You know, it's a bit like 
my mate Rhino Pete runs uh, Bradford City's Junior Academy. And I bet at every trial, he could find holes in the most talented of kids. If you put them on a pitch, there's a hole in every kid's game. Agreed. So let's talk about some thoughts on not doing a second interview. I agree with you here. Offering a job after a first interview is unwise. Yeah, it happens though. Still happens. People do it. It's just desperate. It's just desperate. It's desperate. It's marrying at haste, repenting at leisure. It's just not smart. And there is an element. I was working with a client just before Christmas. Unfortunately, the candidate, actually, the family all got COVID, and one of whom was very sick, and she had to pull out. They, they were in love with her at first interview, and, that, and they were just going to make the process very easy and offer her a job. And actually, my advice to them at the time was, no, she needs to work to get that job or she won't want it. It will all be too easy. If you offer her a job now, it will have been too easy. And when things are too easy, people are smart and they go, ooh, that was a bit easy. Completely agree. And then what about testing, Mike? <laughs> I was just trying to go into that. Testing's a funny one. Because um, I, I, uh, when I look at some of the companies that we deal with, or that we used to, so we used to deal with advanced computer software a lot, we've placed a lot of people there. And they went down a testing route. I think probably one of the first big IT companies in the UK to actually get really involved in the testing process, really. Yeah. And at the, at the time, you know, a lot of the candidates didn't like it. But actually, I think it's the, if it was me and my money, it's what I would do with the caveat that I wouldn't want it to get in the way of the interview process. No. And it, the problem with it is when it becomes a be-all and end-all. Yes. Yes, I agree. You know, with advanced, it was a pass or fail. It was a be-all and an end-all. In reality, if you passed the test and then you turned up to an interview and weren't a dick, you got a job. Pretty much. Whereas if you... Fa- and, and interestingly, I had one guy who failed that test and he's a very pleasant man. He, and he said, the thing is, Mike, I, I'm not being big-headed, but I actually went to Cambridge and I got a first in maths. And he failed the test. Unbelievable. Unbelievable, that, isn't it? He failed it. He actually failed it. But they, they felt he didn't have sufficient cognitive ability to do the job. They didn't think he was smart enough. Yeah, and let's be let's be fair there, you know, we don't deal with them anymore, but they're pretty successful, I would think. I, I imagine. I just don't deal with them enough to know, actually, but I would have thought they are. Yeah. I mean, that's a Vista private equity group thing. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, yes. Cognitive ability testing. Just hire smart people. But I, I think testing's a good idea. You know, we do it. We, we do cognitive ability testing because we believe that smart people will always beat thick people. End of. Well, I'm on page 235, and there's lots of things about the offer that I think are important. Yes. You've put here package. It's an easy place to screw it all up. Isn't it just? It absolutely is. Because I think sometimes I find when clients make the offer, they deflate the candidate. Yeah. The candidate gets all excited because he says salary banding, 70 to 100K basic, and then the candidate gets offered 75. Correct. And they think, well, why haven't I been offered 100? Yeah. It said 75 to 100 on the package. But a lot of that is about controlling expectation throughout the process. Yes. And as you say here, in fairness, it's about understanding exactly where they're at. So I'm on 75K basic, 8K car. You offered me 75K basic, 6K car. Well, I've just dropped two grand. Oh, and I get private health and you haven't offered that. So I'm now five grand out of pocket to come and work for you. How does that work? Yeah, and a lot of that is based on the information that, that the interviewing client actually had in the first place. And a lot of that, going back to these kids on phones recruiters, is because they don't ask the question. Yeah. So if you don't know the answer to that before you make your offer, you stand a good chance of making a mistake because at best you're guessing that the offer is going to be good enough. Correct. The accuracy of that data is, is paramount. I think so. And the next part you've put here is, are they out of work and how quickly can they start? Yeah. I think that's a good point. Now, a lot of the candidates are not out of work at the minute. 
Uh, so that has a different effect. But you know, if you're making an offer to somebody three days before Christmas and they're out of work, the conversion rate of that offer is going to be higher. 100% that's the case. And I like what you've done here, Johnny. We've sort of like got a Gartner Magic Quadrant. Can I say that? Well, I just have. But a Gartner Magic Quadrant style matrix that I think sums it up fairly well, really. On which page? 235, that's on. Oh, yeah. High, low, high. So based on pain and competition and desirability. Mm. So you've got competition on the left and pain on the top. So high pain, high competition. Expect to pay 10 to 20% above current salary to ensure success, at least. I mean, reality is what's interesting about this book, Mike, is it needs revision. You know, uh, 10 to 20%, 30 to 40. It depends, doesn't it? Market. But you see, a lot of that depends uh, on the EVP of the client, though, doesn't it? Because if I'm a super sexy AI company, do I have to pay 10 or 20% more? No. Whereas if I'm some dowdy old ERP company, do I? Well, yeah, probably you do. Depends on how well set up you are as well. Mm. Mm. Do you have good lead gen systems? Can you prove it to people? Mm. Can you really prove to people, listen, if you come here, you'll win business because we'll generate leads for you and our brand is good. Completely agree. If you can prove that, well, then you don't have to pay more money. Yeah, completely agree. If actually you're sat there going, yeah, 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 you'll be all right, but you've got no proof behind that, then you better come up with more money because the candidates intrinsically know that it's a risk and you're mitigating their risk from leaving a job where actually they're probably earning some commission right now. Agree. The next thing you've talked about is Dutch auctions and exploders. Yeah. Well, when I advise clients to add an exploder to the offer letter, they never do it. But I always think it's the right thing to do. The candidate should be able to do their due diligence, 100%. You know, don't in any way disagree with that. Yeah. But should they be able to do their due diligence at any time length? No. You've got an offer. Do your due diligence. Accept it in three days or don't take it. Move on. Particularly in this current market where it's very easy for somebody to get in the habit of collecting job offers. Yeah, and then comparing all the job offers, which is always a disaster anyway. At their time scale and at their speed. Mm. And whilst you're waiting for them to decide whether they will or won't accept your job offer, you can't offer the job to somebody else or close somebody else. And you're missing out on candidates. Yes, completely agree. And then the next point in the book is who should make the offer. My very good client that I do a lot of work with they want to make the offer themselves. And I think that is the best strategy. The client should. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've put here, and some let a third party make the offer like, like, like me, and I'll make the offer on behalf of the client. And obviously, I'll do that. You know, the client pay me a fee, and that's part and parcel of it. However, if I'm a candidate, and I've got two things on the go, and one offer is made to me via a recruiter, and one offer is made to me via the CEO of a business with excitement and passion and love, I'm going to take the second offer nine times out of 10, I think. It's going to be a contributory factor, that's for sure. It's a percentage. Well, your book's about percentage play, isn't it? Any of these things will increase your percentage. Do all of them, it'll massively increase your percentage. So if you can do them all, do them all. Yeah, it is. It's just about increasing your chances of winning but with little margins. And it's the little things. Who should make it? When should you make it? I've written here, the answer to this is as close to the moment of maximum excitement as you can get. You know, not enough clients at the moment make a job offer within hours of an interview and close people within hours of an interview. In the old days, when I first started in recruitment, I remember once a client coming to our offices at Howard Jackson and uh, he met a candidate he really liked. It wasn't a junior job. It was 60, 70K base, which in those days was a nice basic. And uh, it was a 60, 70 grand job, basic salary. He offered the guy the job 
He told the guy to wait in reception. He went out to his car. He got one of these sort of mobile printers. He printed and wrote an offer letter. He put it in the candidate's hand. And then he asked the candidate if he intended to accept the job. The candidate said yes. The candidate rang his boss and resigned whilst he was in our offices. Fair play. Who was that? Your benefits? <laughs> no, no, no. Different client. That's what he did. Yeah. He just took the guy out of the equation like a proper salesman, like a sales pro would. He just ended the string of multiple possibilities that could take place with that candidate. Well, in fact, we had it before in the old days where people would ask to use your printer to print an offer letter. Just wait, mate. Tell you what, mate. I really like this meeting. Just go wait in reception. He rung his boss. He said, I like this one. I'm going to offer him a job. Boss said, yeah, just do it. Go at it. Action, intensity. And that dynamism, that in and of itself is a selling point. What, I think we talked about it in earlier shows. All the candidate sees of your company is the way in which you act during the process. If you're dynamic and punchy and you move fast and you're agile, they see a dynamic, punchy, fast-moving, agile company. Correct. And how many times, Mike, we see, how many candidates do we speak to where they'll say, you know, I'm, we, we, we're about to get a CV off one in the next week or so. He works for a major global enterprise vendor. Their value proposition is unbelievable, but he's sick of it. Why? Because it's not a dynamic, agile business. And people want to work for dynamic, agile companies. That lack of agility takes people out of a lot of jobs and it puts people into a lot of jobs. People want to work in an environment where they can just get shit done, particularly salespeople, particularly good ones. So what you're talking about actually is just basic selling though. Basic selling and being dynamic and energetic and enthusiastic and all of those little things, they all add up to making a candidate sit there and think, I want to work there. I know we talked earlier about the guy that's gone off the market that we haven't placed with one of our clients. He was telling me, he said, that he said the UKMD is running, this is an enterprise vendor. There's just an energy and an intensity and an excitement about the way they've run the campaign because they're obviously sick of getting beat, so they've decided to start winning. Correct. Now you've talked about offer letters. Yep. Guarantees. Yeah, guarantees. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, I skipped over guarantees. It's interesting. I met this client, and actually with, I was talking to him about guarantees, and he said, should I pay them? Um, I think straight, flat guarantees, I wouldn't pay them. I think in certain circumstances, I might pay some form of KPI-based guarantee. But I think if you are going to pay guarantees, it's based on what and why and for what reason, really. Yeah, I'm not fond. I mean, the, the book, I've written a lot. I've written several pages about this. I think the challenge with guarantees is if you're offering a guarantee, it's because you're offering it to somebody who's already doing very well in their job. End of. And if they're doing well in their job, best they demonstrate to you precisely how much commission they're walking away from for which you need to compensate. Yes. They've got to be able to prove the fact that they were actually going to earn it. Yes. But if they are smashing it in their job, they're probably major counteroffer material anyway. And your percentage likelihood of hiring them is slim. I don't care what you say. If somebody's smashing it in their job, they're performing and they're firing. I'm about, I've got a guy going for a second interview next week. He's been smashing it in his job and he's performing and he's firing. But he's actually got to the end of a major, he's been wanting to leave for two years. But every time he gets close to putting his CV on the market, another deal comes in. He hates his boss. Hates him. Mm. But I'll tell you what, when he's making money, he's put up with it, and everybody does. People do. Yes, of course they do. Of course they do, yeah. So actually, if you're offering guarantees, you're probably offering guarantees to somebody who probably hasn't earned that much money. And I reckon if we could do a detailed study between 
okay, let's look at the amount of placements in which somebody's offered a big fat guarantee versus actually the basis upon which you should have offered it and whether it was an enticement or whether it was to compensate missed commissions. Most of them are enticements. Yes, they are. And I get it, it's competitive out there. And okay, if you can throw money at the problem and entice somebody with money, yeah, okay. You know, there's an argument for that. But what I also find is companies that offer guarantees usually have weak value propositions and the guarantee increases expectation on the candidate. Yes, I do completely agree. And the length of tenure of people who are given guarantees is nearly always very short. It'd be interesting to get some stats on that. I don't I don't know about that, but it would be interesting to get some stats. I spoke to a fella on Monday who I just thought was dreadful who got offered a preposterous basic salary and a big fat signing on fee to go to a company we've done a lot of work for, actually. And uh, he was only there eight weeks. And he told me some cock and bull story about how their offering wasn't quite ready, so he decided to depart. Personally, I, I just think that they've hired him, milked him for info and binned him. Yes, maybe. Maybe. Well, you just don't know, though, do you? I mean, I know the company in question, and I think subsequently they've struggled to recruit, and there's a tinge of desperation about it. Because actually, he wasn't really that good a candidate either, I didn't think, when I looked at his background. Um, so let's talk about offer letters. I mean, you've put... People just read the book. Just read the book on offer letters. The long and short of it is the summary of your book is... And I said this to somebody a while ago. The offer letter has got to be a document that you are proud of. If you are giving somebody an offer letter, it's because you think that they're going to generate you a million pounds of revenue. If you were trying to win a million pound contract, what would your proposal look like? That's what your offer letter's got to look like. More than that, Mike, there comes a point where you have to shift into humanity and warmth and making them feel. I always say to clients, there's a shifting point. If I talk to clients around offer time, I always say there's a point in which, and I say the same thing to candidates, there's a point at which you shift psychologically from working for the company that you work for emotionally to working for your new boss. Agreed. They're gentle, shifting sands that take place over about a week. The boss that you work for today, Mr. Candidate, he ain't your boss the day you resign. He's no longer your boss. And the smart clients become the candidate's new boss before the guys even thought about resigning. They build that warmth, that relationship, that friendship, comradeship. You you don't mean they keep selling, do you? They keep selling until the guy is sat at his desk, having already made his first week's worth of cold calls. And even then they keep selling until the guy's been there six months. Yeah. And actually the really great sales leaders, we all know, they keep selling the job to the salespeople every day of the week, every year. They do. I mean, what you're talking about here, and it says it somewhere in the book, I'm sure, is about the fact that the candidates go through a phase of buyer's remorse. It's just inevitable, isn't it? And at that point, then they're at the weakest. Weakest, most nervous, most frightened. To understand how emotional it is, just because these are callous sales guys on a 100k base, don't think for one minute it's not unnerving to give somebody their resignation. It is. Do do you know what's interesting? I, I once placed a guy years ago, absolute top guy, and he was an animal, this guy, when he was a client. I mean, a proper lunatic. And placed him, signed his offer letter, accepted, resigned. Two weeks after he'd resigned, before he'd started, he said, Mike, I'm a bit embarrassed, really. I said, why? 
He said, you know, I'm always really aggressive with you when you're, when you're prospecting me and stuff. I said, yeah. He said, I resigned and they've just ignored me and I don't know what to do. I said, how long has it been going on for? He went, two weeks. I said, when did you have noticing? He said, two weeks ago. I said, what's happened? He said, nothing. They've just sort of ignored it. And I, and I mentioned that because this he was a brutal, tough bugger, this guy. He will have been upset. It's upsetting it's that shit. And it's upsetting having to resign. My mate has just resigned from a job, as it happens after 20 years. He's, he's actually going, it's, it's going to go very nasty and very legal in this particular instance. But he messaged me the night before he was due to resign and his, his solicitor had said to him, you need to resign. He was terrified. It's amazing that people get so scared, isn't it? Yeah, and this is a senior guy in the property industry, senior level guy. You know, he'll be on a big old salary, but he was terrified he was ill. He said he was sick. So it's important to understand the warmth of an offer letter. You know, you can send some offer letter from HR that says, this is your offer. It's 200K. Take it or leave it, in paraphrase words. Or you can write a lovely personalised offer letter. How much we're looking forward to you joining the company. This is what we're going to do. I've already got some plans in place. And it's in the book. I've written two examples. They're chalk and cheese. Yeah, and the first example is normally what happens. I had a candidate take a job recently, actually. And uh, I'm not going to mention his name. I know he listens to the show, so he might recognise it. And he had two offer letters. And, and I know one of the defining points was the quality of the offer letter from the company that he ended up joining. Yeah. He said, literally, the other one, it just looked like the fellow had written it on the train. <laughs> But you can't blame him. How much care and attention has gone into that letter? None. How much care and attention is he going to get when he's there? None. You know, it's fickle, but it was, it was right to turn it down. And an email is not an offer letter. Uh, what, do you mean the offer letter attached to an email, or do you mean... A- no, no. Sometimes you get it where people are wide and they're trying to be dynamic. Oh, yeah, I'll send them an email giving them the headlines. No, don't do that. Turn round a proper offer letter in under six working hours. Turn it round. If you can't turn it around, you're in the wrong company. You ain't going to hire anybody. Turn it round fast and perfect. Oh, and by the way, uh, final parting comment. How many offer letters do we see, Mike, where it says, your place of work will be the London office? Oh, man. Then the candidate rings and goes, mate, I thought this was a home-based job. Yeah, well, um, it's just a standard boilerplate contract. Oh, I feel really special now. And then the candidate says, can you have a bit amend it? Because if it's down as my place of work as the London office, then actually I'm paying my own expenses to get to London. And I live in Manchester. Often that's just a mistake though, isn't it? But it's a mistake, Mike, yeah? An honest error. But I reckon it's a 7 out of 10 job offers error. Yes, I agree. 7 out of 10. And, it, and it's just another reason to throw some doubt into a candidate's mind when they've got four job offers on the table. It's just another reason. Just a, another little flick around the ear to, to sow doubt. No, it's another point of percentage, isn't it? That's what it is. Yeah. Just a, another, yeah, it's another half point, another one point. Oh, God, yeah. And then the offer letter. So, so it's process driven and HR don't know their arse from their elbow. Ugh. That's what it's going to be like working there, is it? Correct. Completely agree. And then the other offer letter comes in your place of work will be home. It would be great to see you in the London office every now and then, though. All right. So I get expensed for going to London. Brilliant. That's clear. Completely agree. Yeah. So we've covered a lot over the three weeks. And I think what I will do at some point in the next few months is I'll sit down, I'll block a day or so out of my diary, and I'll create a full audio book. And in the audio book, I'll do what Gary Vaynerchuk does in his books, which is I'll read the book and then I'll stop and talk about different bits as we go and maybe 
you can come in and help me talk about a few different bits. I'm busy, actually. You're busy. You can, what are you doing washing your hair? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So in short, it's out there. Go out and read it. If you are a hiring sales manager, I promise you, everybody who's read it has said it really helped. And next week, we're doing Sell Different by Lee Saltz. Exciting. We haven't graded the book, Johnny. Well, it's a solid four for me. Is it? That many? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's. Uh, I don't know. It, if you ever had a moment where you've thought, oh, hiring's hard, I promise you you'll be glad you bought it. Good stuff. Right. And at that, we'll see you next week. Start reading Sell Different by Lee Saltz. Bye. Bye.